0: The story of Easter is the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And so a key question is, why? Why was Jesus killed? I mean, Jesus was a teacher, right, who taught that we should turn the other cheek and love your enemies and let the little children come and sit on his knee. You know, the gentle shepherd who welcomed outcasts and told parables about fathers forgiving sons and good Samaritans tending to the wounds of strangers on the side of the road. I mean, who would disagree with any of that? Never mind kill the teacher who taught it. As we saw in the last episode, when it comes to key questions like, why was Jesus killed, the library of the Bible, and the Christian theological tradition more generally, doesn't provide just one answer, but rather many. In effect, inviting us in to investigate the question for ourselves. This makes sense, especially since the matter of who killed Jesus is complex enough. In all four Gospels, the stories go out of their way to make clear that there was plenty of blame to go around. The Roman imperial authorities, of course, the civil and religious leadership, the disciples themselves who betray and desert Jesus, and the wider crowds who all too easily turn from bystanders into a murderous mob. In the old African-American spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The poetic implication is, Yes, we were. We were all there. We still are. If the mystery of Easter is a who done it, the answer is, we done it. We all done it. And such a wide range of culprits must be driven by an equally wide range of reasons. But as long as we bear in mind this broad complicity, we can still zero in on the cause of death itself crucifixion, which was, after all, a distinctively Roman imperial form of execution. So that sharpens the question, why would the Roman Empire, arguably the most powerful force on earth at the time, execute an unarmed peasant rabbi from Nazareth? I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part three of our seven part series on understanding Easter. In the Library of the New Testament, the four Gospel writers don't exactly agree on why Jesus is killed, but they do agree that it had something to do with a dramatic incident in the Jerusalem temple, when Jesus boldly, angrily drives the money changers out of the temple grounds, sending doves flying and coins scattering across the sacred stone floor. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this episode happens just before Jesus' death, right after his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey, the parade that today's churches commemorate each year on Palm Sunday. But in the Gospel of John, the episode doesn't happen at the end of Jesus's public ministry. It happens at the very beginning of it. This is how Jesus goes public. He's just performed his first miracle, turning water into wine at a small-town wedding, but only his disciples, his mother, and a few servants are aware of it. The clearing out of the Jerusalem temple is how Jesus introduces himself to the world. He launches his public ministry With anger. So, what's he angry about? As we've seen in the first two episodes of this series, in the Genesis creation stories, God establishes an implicit covenant with humankind, commissioning us to cultivate and care for the Earth's garden of delight and all of its creatures, human and otherwise a covenant God makes crystal clear in the restart story of Noah and the Ark. This is the covenant, the life together with God, that God intends. But in both cases, human beings have another idea, an addition that they'd like to contribute. They want to give gifts to God. Which is understandable enough as an impulse. When we receive a gift, we often want to give something back in return. But when it comes to God, the idea that we can give something back in return, it's a bit presumptuous. But more than that, it's out of touch with our actual situation. It's like when a loving parent gives a gift to a young child. The parent doesn't want the child to give something back in return, the parent wants the child to enjoy the gift, and through the gift, to enjoy their life together as parent and child. But what does humanity do? Like a little toddler, we set up our sandcastle altars on the beach and solemnly present our spoonful of water to the ocean, imagining ourselves to be God's benefactors. It would be adorable if there wasn't such a shadow side underneath it. Immediately after the creation stories in Genesis is the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's two sons. In the very first scene after the family's exile from Eden, the brothers set up a sacrificial ceremony, offering God gifts. God doesn't ask them to, they just do it. And likewise, at the end of the Noah story, after the waters subside and God instructs the new first family to exit the ark, what does Noah do? You guessed it. He sets up a sacrificial ceremony, offering God gifts. God doesn't ask him to. He just does it. And over the centuries, this sacrificial impulse grows into an elaborate sacrificial system. Sandcastles into stone, and at last into a great imposing fortress. Not the temple itself, but the system that makes a certain idea of the temple possible. What idea? The idea that the temple is a kind of machine that runs on sacrifice an escalator, a tower with its top in the heavens, so that humanity can climb up and be colleagues with God, can exchange gifts with God, and so can curry favor with God. This idea pictures the temple as a great ladder, connecting humanity with God, or at least connecting prestigious religious professionals with God. But at the same time, this way of thinking, this ladder, has the opposite effect separating humanity from God, since not everyone, after all, is permitted to climb the ladder. But as many authors in the Bible's library contend, this separation, this idea that the temple is a tower, isn't what God wants. In fact, just as in the analogy of the parent and the young child, this is the opposite of what God wants. God doesn't want us to think of the temple as a tower. God wants us to think of the temple as a house. To get a sense of what's at stake in this distinction, we need look no farther than one of the classic covenantal stories in the Bible's library, the story of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. God has just liberated them from enslavement in Egypt and led them through a kind of wilderness training program, and now they come to the mountain of God and receive the Torah, the law, the commandments about how to live with God and neighbor. It can be tempting to view the thou shalt nots of the law as imperious rules that we have to follow or else— But remembering that the law is covenantal, that is, that it's meant as a way of life together with God and neighbor, this can help us hear the commandments not as arbitrary rules, but rather as loving limits guiding human beings toward lives of justice, grace, and dignity. From this point of view, the covenantal law transforms doing what is right into a calling, a vocation, something we do not only for its own sake, but also as a form of listening to God. The root of the word obedience, by the way, is the Latin word for to listen. And this, the story of Sinai suggests, is what God wants. Think of it this way. At Sinai, God could have given the Israelites a great tower or a great temple, or a powerful weapon, or immeasurable wealth. But instead, God gave them a law, a pathway for living that would shape nearly everything they do, there in the wilderness, but also anywhere else they might go, investing virtually every moment with the possibility of holiness and beauty, dignity and devotion. At its best, a law is a way of life, It transforms the world into a place of living together with God, a kind of cosmic temple. Understood this way, thou shalt not murder isn't an injunction. It's a description. It's a portrait of a beautiful life together with God and neighbor, as if to say, When you live the life you were born to live in the great house of creation, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You shall not lie. The law doesn't demand, but rather describes the fully human way of life with God. And yet, we lose sight of all of this every day. We turn descriptions into injunctions, gifts into mere duties. We turn the macrocosmic temple of creation into a supposedly profane wasteland. In fact, the word profane comes from the Latin for outside the temple. And we turn the microcosmic temple, the one in Jerusalem, or the church on the corner of First and Main, into a sacrificial machine, an escalator, a supposedly skyscraping tower with its top in the heavens We insist on presenting our offerings, our spoonfuls of water to the ocean. We build our elaborate ladders, our sacrificial systems, our sacred hierarchies that supposedly connect us with God, but actually separate us from God and from each other. And precisely because we do all of this, the story of Sinai calls us to think again, to remember again that God is already with us and wants us to be with God. No ladders necessary, no climbing, no spoonfuls, no sacrificed cattle or sheep or doves, no sacrificial system, no thousands and tens of thousands of rivers of oil, as the prophet Micah puts it. Over and over, the Hebrew prophets join this chorus. God doesn't want these things, they cry, neither the blood nor the oil. God wants to be with us. God wants us to listen. God wants, in Amos' words, justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And what does Amos contrast these rolling waters of justice with? The sacrificial system. Here's how Amos puts it, quoting God. I hate, God says, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. The clear implication is that the sacrificial system is a distraction, a perversion, even an engine of injustice and corruption, distorting what should be a house into a tower, a place of living together with God into a structure that we are supposed to climb. And it's not just Amos who shakes his fist at this distorted, brutal system. It's many of the other prophets, too. It's Micah, it's Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Hosea, and Zechariah. On the day of the Lord, Zechariah says, the day when God comes into Jerusalem triumphant, it won't be on a war horse, but rather on a donkey. God won't be declaring victory over enemies, but rather peace to the nations, Zechariah says, evoking the ancient covenant of peace in the story of Noah, from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And on that day, Zechariah continues, holiness will be everywhere, not just at the temple altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah, the prophet declares, shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts. As holy as the bowls in front of the altar, every cooking pot, even the most domestic ordinary objects of everyday life, will be as sacred as the holy paraphernalia of the temple. And then Zechariah delivers the coup de grace in the very last sentence of his book. And there shall no longer be traders in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. No traders necessary. Which brings us back to Jesus and the money changers. In Jesus' day, the sacrificial system at the temple was an elaborate arrangement. In order to make the right kind of animal sacrifice, you needed the right kind of animals, since only certain animals were allowed, and those animals—cattle and sheep and doves— were available for sale on the temple grounds. To buy those animals, you needed the right kind of money. Since only certain coins were allowed in the temple, and since people came from all over carrying all kinds of currency, you needed a currency exchange. The money changers, seated at their tables. The traders. Think of them as the entry point, the first rung up the ladder of the sacrificial system. And at the same time, think of each rung on that ladder as a kind of layer of separation, a distance that if you can't manage to cross it, you're shut out. Without animal sacrifice, no connection with God. Without the proper animal, no animal sacrifice. Without the proper currency, no proper animal. And without currency at all, without money, the door is closed. You're on the outside, looking in. This is what the sacrificial system that began in those stories of Cain and Abel and continued through the story of Noah had become. And this is the system that the Hebrew prophets, each in their own way and in their own era, boldly, fiercely opposed with righteous indignation. Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zechariah, and Jesus— According to the Gospel of John, the Passover festival is near, and Jesus decides to take up the prophetic mantle, to introduce himself to the world by way of a big, bold, provocative drama in the most prestigious Jewish space of all, at the most prestigious Jewish time of all, the days just before Passover. No weapons were allowed in the temple, so Jesus improvises a whip out of cords and drives out the merchants, animals, and money changers, turning over their tables boldly, fiercely, with righteous indignation. Stop making God's house a marketplace. Now, to be clear as a rule, Jesus is not against marketplaces. He doesn't go around Galilee and Jerusalem denouncing local markets. No, His concern, like the prophets before Him, is focused on this particular marketplace, the linchpin of the sacrificial system. This is God's house, Jesus says, not a marketplace in which we buy and exchange our way up a ladder, climbing a tower with its top in the heavens. It's past time for that system to end, Jesus declares, and for a new day to dawn. In other words, Jesus driving the traders out of the temple, like his arrival in Jerusalem on a donkey is a kind of street theater declaring through action that the long-awaited day is here at last. Holiness will overflow conventional bounds, and the temple as we know it will give way to a more capacious, more inclusive, more accessible mode of encountering God. As John tells it, Jesus' arrival inaugurates a new era, a new conception of the temple, not as a building, but as a person in spirit and truth, Jesus himself, God's word made flesh, and also the one who in the beginning was with God and was God and through whom all things were made. Accordingly, the old sacrificial system must end. There's no need for animals and burnt flesh and money changers and all the rest. In fact, the old system only stands in the way. Drive out the traitors. Zechariah's vision is fulfilled. Fashion a whip out of cords, scatter the coins, and let a thousand doves fly, for the hour has come. Such provocative, revolutionary ideas were no doubt exciting and deliciously scandalous to the crowds. Jesus' words and actions seemed to declare the beginning of the long-promised deliverance from Roman bondage. God's new day had begun. It's just as Zechariah said. The traitors have been cleared from the temple. And for this very reason, the powers that be understood Jesus as a dangerous troublemaker. The last thing the Romans wanted was an uprising, and they were ready and eager to nip this one in the bud. And so the local leadership, too, couldn't help but be disturbed and anxious. A man like this, performing miracles and enacting ancient prophecies, could draw crowds, great crowds, and those crowds could draw the attention of the Roman occupiers. The shadow of the cross, then, already falls on Jesus' ministry even here, at the very outset of his public work in the Gospel of John. From this opening scene on, the question isn't why Jesus is killed, it's when and how they'll kill him. Jesus himself seems to sense this. No sooner has he driven the traitors from the temple than he cryptically foretells his death. Destroy this temple, he says, and in three days I will raise it up. The authorities think he's referring to the brick and mortar, but in fact, John explains, he was speaking of the temple of his body. It's worth remembering here that the Gospel of John was written just a few decades after the Roman armies had destroyed the Jerusalem temple, a period when both Jews and early Christians were struggling to make sense of the world without what they had considered its sacred axis. Rabbinic Judaism eventually refigured the temple as the home, and early Christians refigured the temple as the body of Jesus, which is also the body of the church, and the body of, as John puts it, the logos, the word, the logic, the pattern underlying the great macrocosmic temple of creation. Why? Was Jesus killed? Because he announced in clear, compelling terms and actions the dawn of a new day, the day of the Lord, God's Jubilee, a new Passover, a new exodus from bondage, a new freedom to abide in God as God abides in us, and so a new world brimming with holiness, from the most exalted spaces to the most mundane. The temple mount to those old beat-up cooking pots in the kitchen. A new world where holiness is everywhere and justice flows like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. A world where traders are driven from the temple and a man named Lazarus is raised from the dead. Witnessing and hearing about all of this Great crowds understood Jesus to embody, to fulfill what the ancient prophets had long promised. His anger was prophetic anger, the sacred zeal that moves against and beyond the sacrificial system of dead animals and toward an intimate simplicity of covenantal life together. As John tells it, heartbreaking as it is, that's why Jesus was crucified— The powers-that-be feared the crowds and had too much invested in the status quo. In their minds, Jesus would have to become just one more in a long line of prophets killed in Jerusalem. And yet, little did they know, his death isn't the end of the story. It's only the beginning. Strange New World is a Salt Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. So drop us a line, let us know what you think. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.